to be talking about spiritual habits. Because, see, when I say spiritual disciplines, immediately, uh, you know, you just like, ah, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> but if, I'm going to talk about developing three spiritual habits. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy 4, 7. And um, I forgot my Bible. And I can't read because I don't have my glasses. So, um, here, Esteban, just read it because <laughs> I, I can't see. Vanity, you should see my font. <laughs> First Timothy 4, 7. All right. 4, 7, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to train ourselves to be godly. There is a book called, this is a true book, it's called The First Really Important Survey of American Habits. And what it does is it describes all the different habits that people in America have. So I thought I'd kind of do a little informal survey here to find out how Victor Irish Hayward conforms to the national standards now. This is one of the surveys that were taken. When preparing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which goes on the top layer, peanut butter or jelly? How many of you say peanut butter? How many of you say jelly? Whoa. Okay, well, see, this church is off. <laughs> because only 4% said jelly. 96% of American people said peanut butter. We're, we're different, okay? Now, when you put your socks in your door, do you roll them up or do you fold them flat? Okay. How many of you roll them up? How many of you put them flat? How many of you just throw them in there? <laughs> okay, that's a tell the truth. That's a tell the truth. <laughs> okay, 51% of American people store their socks flat. 49% roll them up. And those of you who are <laughs> in the throw them in, your victory outreach. <laughs> okay. How many of you have ever bit your fingernails? 96% of Americans have bitten their fingernails. So you're in a good group. Now, what about biting your toenails? Okay, okay, don't lie. Don't lie, okay? 26% <laughs> of Americans bite their toenails. 26%. That's one quarter of all Americans. Some of you are looking around and going, okay. <laughs> okay. This is just a survey. All right. When, you f when do you fill up your car with gas? When it's a quarter low, when it's half empty, when it's three quarters empty, when it's almost empty, or when it stops moving? How many of you are on the almost empty stuff moving? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
Who is usually late in your household? You or your spouse? If it's you, raise your hand. If it's your spouse, raise your hand. Okay, there's something wrong here because it was only like six people that voted. <laughs> if you were here when, when um, AJ started singing, raise your hand. Okay, see? There we go. All right. Do you replace an empty roll of toilet tissue or do you leave it for the next person to replace? How many of you fill it before you leave? How many of you say, you know what, the next person's got to deal with it? <laughs> okay. How many of you prefer that the toilet roll over rather than under? How many of you like over? How many of you like under? Okay, now this is really strange because 68% of Americans like it over. 68. So if you're in the 32% of the under, you're in the minority. And you know what? Let me tell you something. If you're married or if you're planning on getting married, an over will always marry an under. That's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a little scary. If you are like adamant, I like it over, and every time you go, it's flipped around and it's under. <laughs> you may think it's insignificant, but for some people who are OCD, that is very important. Okay, last one. Who uses the most space in your closet? Her or him? How many, of you are, how many of you are hers that say you use up the most space? Okay, how many of you are hims and say you use up the most space? Okay, come on, because some of you aren't honest. Esteban, you are not being honest. <laughs> okay, all the hims that use up more closet space. Raise your hand. Okay. You still didn't raise your hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. 28% of men use up more closet space, and 80% of women use up more closet space. That's because women have to have more clothes. They have to have all shoes and to match the outfit. You know, guys will just wear any color shoes with any color pants. <laughs> anyway, so what I wanted to bring out are habits. The fact is that habits shape our lives. And why is it that some people are more effective than others? Why is it that some people accomplish more in their life than others? Why is it that some people reach their goals in life and others don't? Some people go to greater heights than other people ever do. Some people get more out of life than others. Why are just some people more effective? The answer is habits. They have different habits. Effective people develop habits that ineffective people are unwilling to commit to. Why do... 
marathoners become marathoners? Because they're out there. Rain or shine or sleet or hail. They are running. We look out, ooh, the sun's not out, ooh. And we put the blankets on and say, you know what, tomorrow. And then tomorrow. See, that's the real difference. Why is it that some Christians are more dynamic than other Christians? Why is it that some Christians seem to grow and they seem to have their prayers answered and they seem to have a lot of God's blessings on their life and there's others that don't? They just kind of go through life and they're like on a bummer because they don't get their prayers answered. It's just humdrum and they don't, they're not effective. Why is it that God seems to single out some people and blesses them more than others? Well, it's the same answer for both. Effective Christians commit themselves to habits that ineffective Christians are not willing to commit themselves to. So today we're going to look at three spiritual habits for effective Christian people that I think are absolutely essential, absolutely important for your spiritual health. I've been a Christian for 39 years, and I've met thousands and thousands of Christians all over the world. And what I'm about to share with you tonight are what I consider the common denominator of every growing Christian. Anybody that I have seen grow, it's because they have these three habits in their life. No matter who they are, no matter what country they're in, no matter who their pastor is, no matter what church they belong to, no matter how old or how young, if you do these three things, you will develop habits that will make you effective in your Christian walk. Because every growing Christian, every dynamic Christian has them. So there was a survey taken of three top businessmen in the nation. And they were doing a panel interview on what habits made them effective. And these three top businessmen in all of America happened to be Christians. And all three of them had these habits. We're talking from the President of the United States to the Speaker of the House to the wealthiest man in America. These three habits that I'm talking to you about today are the same habits that great, great men of stature and title have and great, great men like Billy Graham have. Same things. These three habits that I want to share with you tonight have personally shaped my life and made me into the person that God can use today. And I don't think that these habits are optional. You can't just take one and say, well, you know what, I like the other two. I don't really like that one. If you're serious about serving God, if you're serious about finishing, then you've got to build these habits into your life. You know, I, I watched a, a program last night, or this, or yeah, last night, and, um, and it was about a Christian. And, and it never hit me so hard as it did watching this program. Because this man built a college. This man uh, endowed a lot of young men and women with scholarships. This man did a lot of great things with his money. But at the end of his life, he had an affair. And, and as I sat watching him and watching his face, the, the, the whole life just hit me so hard. And I said, 
It's not on how you start. It's how you finish. That's important. And I thought if he would have had these three habits, he would have finished better than what he started. See, today there's a lot of emphasis on physical fitness, and I believe in physical fitness. In fact, I'm going to get into the physical fitness. But the Bible says that spiritual fitness is more important. 1 Timothy 4.7 in the Phillips translation says, Take the time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. It takes energy to stay fit. It's not automatic. It takes effort. If you want to lose weight, you're going to have to take the time and effort. And just like it takes time to get physically fit, it takes effort to be spiritually fit. And if you don't do spiritual exercise, then you will be spiritually flabby. I wonder if we had an exercise machine here today. I mean, uh, not exercise, x-ray. A spiritual x-ray machine. And we were to walk through it. I wonder how many would actually be spiritually fit or who would be anorexic or who would be all, um, I don't know another word, all awada, I don't know what else, all uh, shaking, flabby. Some of you may say, well, why bother? The, Bi the Living Bible says spiritual exercises will help you not only in this life, but in the next life too. So what I'm going to share with you will not just help you now, but the Bible says it's going to help you in long-term results. So how do I get spiritually fit? Exercise spiritually. And these are the three areas, and I'm going to talk about them. Your time, your money, and your relationships. And these three areas are needed to develop good habits in your life. If God is number one in your time, if God is number one in your money, if God is number one in your relationships, then he's number one. We can sit here and we can say, oh, yeah, he is, he is, he is. But it doesn't matter what we say. It matters what we do. So to develop any new habit, you need to understand these three things. For any habit to stick, when you're going to start a new habit in your life, and some of us need to start new habits, these are the three things that you need to understand if you want to make a habit stick. You need to understand the reason you want this habit to stick. You will have to understand the routine that you're going to have to stick to in order to make this habit stick, and you're going to have to look forward to the result. So the reason is, why should I start this habit? The routine, how do I do it? And number three, what's the payoff? So let's just say that you were going to uh, start doing something physical because you wanted to lose 20 pounds. So the reason why should I start it? Because my belt's feeling a little bit tight. The routine, I'm going to have to get up every morning at 5.30 and either hit the gym or, or start walking or start running around my block. And the payoff, what's the result? Is that I'm going to be able to go buy a whole new wardrobe. But each of the habits that I'm going to share with you today come with these three reasons, results, and routine. I'm going to apply these three into how you can develop a habit in your life. Because if you want to develop spiritual habits, you need to answer these questions. What's the reason? What's the routine? And what's the result? Otherwise, you'll give up. The first habit that 
you need to start developing into your life. Number one, make time for God every day. Make time with God every day. And I'm talking about a quiet time for Bible reading and prayer. That's what I'm talking about. Now, what's the reason for that? The reason for that is to get direction from God. Psalm 25, 4 says, Show me the path where I should go, Lord. Point out the right road for me to walk. Lead me. Show me. Sometimes we can get so busy in our life that we forget the direction that we're going in. How many of you have ever walked into the room from another room and said, what, what am I supposed to do here? And you forget. I mean, you're just forgetting from one room to the next. You forget why you walked into that room. Or you're calling somebody and then they say hello and you're like, uh, I know that I was supposed to tell you something. And you forget. And the Bible says, show me, direct me, give me a direction because we forget. We forget from one minute to the next. We forget from the morning all the way through the day. Just like the pilot in World War II who was flying over the Pacific, he was radioing his commander and he says, I have absolutely no idea where I'm going. I'm lost, but I'm making record time. <laughs> he was like going nowhere. Fast. Fast. And many times we get busy. We need to slow down and get direction from God. We need to spend time with God on a daily basis. Do I know it's difficult? Yes. Do I know it's hard? Yes. Do I know sometimes it's almost, almost impossible? Yes. But do I know that it can happen? Yes. We need to let him talk to us from his word and get direction. Every major decision in my life was done through prayer. It wasn't done to, through, oh, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. You need to spend some time when you need to make a decision. What's the routine? The routine is to get alone. Jesus is our model. The Bible says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Lonely. You can't get to know God in a crowd. I know that we uh, encourage you to come, and I'm going to get into that, to church. But you really can't get to know God in a crowd. You didn't get to know your husband and your wife in a crowd. You got to know them when you were alone. It's the same way with the Lord. You have to get alone with him to know him. You got to get to know him one-on-one. -on -one. And the Bible says that Jesus did it often. He often withdrew. And nobody lived a busier life than Jesus. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have cars. They didn't have all of the conveniences that we do. He had to walk everywhere. I mean, some of us don't even walk to the corner store. And he had to walk everywhere. And he could never walk alone. Imagine that. You know, I mean... The Pharisees and Sadducees and, and people who were needed healing, I mean, he would just walk out of his house and they were there. He was never alone. The only time that he was alone is when he would climb a mountain because nobody wanted to climb a mountain to go pray. And he would climb 
And they would say, oh, yeah, he's going to go pray. I ain't going to follow. It's too hard, too difficult. And that's how it is. When you want to get alone to pray, sometimes you got to shut out the TV and shut out the kids and shut out, shut, turn your phone off. Some of you want to pray with your phone right there. Just in case somebody calls. Can't miss a call. Oh, my gosh. What did you do before your cell phone? Turn it off. Put it in the other room. Put it on silent. Do whatever you got to do. His quiet time, Jesus' quiet time was his source of strength, and it's also ours. So we have the reason, we have the routine. What's the result? The result is you get God's help. When you spend time with him every day, God comes in, and he helps you on what you need to have, which is direction. John 15, 7 says, Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you may ask for anything you wish, and you shall have it. Now that is an incredible promise. How many of us just say, you know what, I'll take that. Whatever I ask, I could have it. Does God lie? The Bible says that you may have, you may ask what you wish and you shall have it. Then why don't you have it? Some of you have been wishing and hoping and, and cross your finger praying and you still don't have it. Why? Because there's a condition in there. With every promise, there is a condition. With every promise, there is a premise. God says, you do this, then I will do this. You know, parents, you know, when you tell your kids, you clean your room, and then you get the cookie. You, clean, you, you do your homework, and then you get dessert. God's the same way. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then when you will ask for something, you'll get it. But so many of us, it takes too much to remain in him. It takes too, too much time to, to do what he wants. And God, there's a condition for every promise in the Bible. Sometimes we, we don't like to read the promise, the, the premise or condition above or below. We just want the promise. Just give me the promise. But you got to read it all. There is a condition to every promise. He says if you do two things, if number one, you remain in me, and secondly, if my words remain in you. Remaining in me means that you got to talk to me. you got to fellowship with me. you got to get alone with me on a regular basis. And if my words remain in you, then that means that you're going to spend time in the word. And then, and only then, can you ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. But you got to do what he asks first. So when is the best time to have quiet time? For you, whatever works for you. Some of you are not morning people. I mean, it's like don't talk to you in the morning or you'll get a bear. And then there's some of you who are, who are not night people. You're, you're like you're talking and you're, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Whenever your best time is, if it's morning, if it's afternoon, or if it's night, give God your best. If you're, if you're a morning person, then don't wait to have your quiet time at night. Because you're only going to read two scriptures and then you're going to go. You're going to fall asleep. And you say, well, Lord, I tried. No, you didn't try because 
If you wanted to really spend time with him, you would have done it on your best time, not on your worst time. If you're a morning person, get up half hour earlier. Spend time with the Lord. If you're a night person, turn off the TV. Spend time with the Lord. If you're an afternoon person, take your lunch time. Spend time with the Lord. Don't be going out with everybody. Hey, let's go here. Let's go there. Spend time with the Lord. You figure out your best time and make sure it's your best so that you could hear God. Amen? Secondly, the second habit that needs to be developed in our life is that we need to give a tithe to God every week. Tithing is the spiritual habit of giving back to God the first 10% of everything that comes into my life. The first 10%. Not the bottom 10%, the first. If I make $100, I give back how much? $10. If I make $1,000, how much do I give back? $100. I get to keep 90%, and I give back to the Lord 10%. Now, why would anybody do that? Some of you are saying, well, you know what? I, I don't really believe in this whole tithing, giving back 10%. God says to do this. He says it in the Old Testament, and he says it in the New Testament. And that's reason enough. Because if you don't do it, then you're disobeying God. But there's more reason, because Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So what is the reason to give your 10%? What is the reason to tithe? The, fir the, the first reason is that tithing will draw you closer to God. See, that's what tithing does. Some of you may not even understand, how could giving my tithe draw me closer to God? Because the more you tithe, the more it draws you closer to God. Because wherever you put your money, that's where your heart is. If you give to God first, then that means your heart is following it. If you put your money in a boat, that's where your heart is. Those of you who bought a brand new car, if you've ever bought a brand new car, you know your heart was there. You were watching it. You parked it far, far away so nobody would scratch it. You didn't let anybody eat or drink in the car. You kept spraying that new car smell. You kept doing everything just so that you could keep it fresh and brand new. Your heart was in your car. Or maybe it's in your house. Or maybe it's in your clothes. But if it is in your church, wherever you put your money, that is what becomes important to you. If God is first in my money, that means God is first in my life. If you show me, show me how you spend your time. Show me how you spend your money, and I'll tell you what's important to you. I'll tell you what's important to you because how you spend your time and how you spend your money, there it is. Some of you may say, well, God is important. He's nowhere in your checkbook. God is important. You miss church whenever there's a good thing on TV. It's not what you say. It's what you do. Whatever is on your time schedule and whatever is in your checkbook, that is what's important to you. It doesn't matter what you say. It's a matter of what you do. Show me your schedule. Show me the money. And I'll show you what's important. Deuteronomy 14.23 says that the purpose of tithing 
is to teach us to always put God first in our life. So if I say, God, I want you to be number one in my life, and he's last on my budget, then there's a contradiction. The Bible says that giving is the antidote to materialism. Materialism is so difficult to break in our life, especially those of us who came from inner city. I, I have shared with you many times how difficult it was for me for materialism because growing up not having stuff, it's like when I had an opportunity to get it, I didn't just buy one or I didn't just buy two. I bought three and four and five because I was like, I don't want to be without it. What if, what if I eat, you know, uh, finish this box of cereal, then what, I got to run to the store? No, I'll just get another one, or I'll just get three. Or there's a big sale, a big sale, and you come home with 15 bars of soap because it's on sale. The materialism of the world says get, get, get. And the opposite or the antidote to materialism is giving. It's just the opposite. As I learn to hold on to things with an open hand, and as I learn how to give and return the first part of my income, whatever comes into my hand, whatever blessing comes into my hand, whether it's someone who gives me, you know, $10 or whether they give me $100, God automatically gets off the top because I want God's blessing on the rest. I do not want to have my curse on the whole hundred percent. When we give God his 10%, it breaks the grip of materialism on our life. Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave. And if you want to be like God, then you got to learn how to be a giver. So there's the reason. Now what's the routine? The routine for giving or for tithing, the Bible says, is every week. Every week. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says on the first day of every week. It doesn't say every month or once a year or at the time of tax return, but every week. You need to set aside of some of what you've earned and give it as an offering. And the offering depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. Every week. Now, I know that's, that's not always easy. But it could be a habit if you do it every week. A habit of giving to God what belongs to him. So on what day are we supposed to do it? The Bible says on the first day. What is on our calendar the first day? Sunday. Why Sunday? Because that's when we come to worship. We come to worship and we worship him in our giving. You don't tithe to United Way. You don't tithe to Christian Children's Fund. You don't tithe to the veterans. All of those are good and great organizations. But you don't tithe to them. You don't tithe to Joyce Myers. You don't tithe to any of those TV programs. That is not where your tithe goes. Your tithe goes to the place where you worship. Then you want to give an offering? Go for it. You give an offering. But you don't give your tithes because the Bible says that you are to bring your tithe to the place of worship, to where you worship. You tithe where you worship. On the first day of the week, you bring your tithe. 
So not only does he say, I want you to give the first part of your day or part of your day in quiet time, the first day of the week in worship, I want you to give off the top of the first part of your money. And that's when we know God is first in our life. So why should we do it weekly? Bible says that we're supposed to do it on the first day of the week. He, he wants to remind us that he has to be number one. Sometimes we forget. But if you're paid bi-monthly or monthly, then give it then. And don't say, well, you know what? If I get paid monthly and I get paid $1,000, then I'm going to hold on to the 100 and I'll just give 25 a week. You're going to give the first 25 and then you're going to come up with reasons why you need to spend the other 75. It says, set aside what you've earned and give it as an offering. If you make a thousand, you give a hundred. And if you don't come to church, you send it in. Don't just say, oh, I'll give it next time because next time just doesn't happen. Don't spend God's money because when you spend God's money, then you bring a curse upon your finances. And then you wonder, where did all my money go? Because you didn't put him first. So we know the reason and we know the routine. So what is the result? The result is found in Malachi 3.10. Bring your whole tithe into my storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it. See, there are promises in the Bible about giving more than any other subject. And if you want God's blessing in your life, then this is the habit you have to develop. There are men and women who are sitting in this room who have developed this habit. I developed it when I was just a teenager. And I'm so glad I did because had I not, oh my gosh, we have drug addicts, we have alcoholics, we have gang members, but the most self-righteous people are the self-righteous. They're the worst of the worst. They're the materialistic ones. And if God had not broken the materialism in me, I don't know what I would be. Get time with God every day and tithes to God every week. Every growing Christian that I know has a quiet time in tithes. That's a habit. You cannot outgive God. Now, when you look at the news, 2011 was pretty bad for economy. 2012 doesn't look any better. We're going to have to tighten the belt even more. It's going to be a tough year economically for all of us. But as humbly and simply as I could ask you and advise you, I want you to know that even in the tight economy that we're living in, your insurance has to be that God is going to take care of you. It has to be. Because if you try to do it on your own, it's not going to happen. You have to say, God, I'm going to do what you say, and I'm going to trust you to help me make it through this day, through this week, through this month, and through this year. I don't know a better financial policy than to trust in God. There's more promises, like I said in the Bible, regarding money than anything else. And you cannot outgive him. You just can't. If you're going to be dynamic in your Christian life, you need to spend time with God every day. You need to tithe to the Lord every week. And then number three, you need to get connected, which means you need to get together with other believers regularly. 
This is called fellowship, sharing and caring together. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together. Instead, let us encourage one another. I don't know about you, but there are many times when I come to church and I need encouragement. I know there are many times when you come and you need encouragement. Life can be tough, and man, if you've got teenagers, it can really be discouraging. The fact is, you're not going to be effective if you go it alone. You are not called to be a Lone Ranger Christian. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. So what is the reason for fellowship? The reason for fellowship is that we need encouragement. You need people in your life. I know that there are some of you who are saying, I don't need any more people. There's a, a movie, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and, and I, that's one of my favorite movies with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, and he comes to introduce herself, himself to her, and she says, oh, no, I don't want to meet you. And he says, what do you mean? She goes, I can't have any more people in my life. I'm full. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, when I first saw it, I go, how strange. She has enough people in her life that she can't add one more. And that may have sounded strange in the movie, but it's really even stranger when we act like that. We come late, we leave early. We never make that contact with anybody in the church. In fact, when somebody comes toward us, we're like, oh, exit stage left, I'm out, because they're going to ask me something. And I don't want to get connected. The reason for fellowship is because life was not meant to be lived by ourselves. See, my children, or my daughters, correct me, went to Redwood Christian. My son went to Fremont Christian, but my daughters went to Redwood Christian. And here in Northern California, we are known for giant redwoods more than any other part of the country. And redwood trees, they grow really, really tall. But they also have shallow roots, which means that they don't go down real deep. They kind of stay on the top of the soil. You can actually see the roots. And the only way that they are able to withstand the winds and withstand the storms that we get in Northern California is by spreading out their roots and intertwining with the other redwoods. If you ever go to look at redwoods, you'll see that all their roots from one tree to another is all connected. They're all gnarled up. And because they're gnarled up, it's easy so that when the winds come, this tree holds up this tree, and this tree holds up this tree, and this tree holds up this tree. And that's why we have forests of redwood trees, because they're each holding each other together. They're intertwining. That is the perfect picture of fellowship. We spread out, we intertwine, and then we hold each other up. We strengthen each other. A snowflake all by itself is frail. But you get enough snowflakes to stick together, you could stop traffic. A snowflake by itself will easily evaporate, but a group of snowflakes can shut down a city, can shut down an airport, can shut down a highway, because snowflakes together can do something. So you can't do a whole lot alone. 
I can't do a whole lot alone. But together, in a group, we can impact this city. Together, in a group, we can cause everyone who comes in to feel needed. We can allow ourselves to intertwine with each other and to allow each other to walk out of this church and feel like they have actually connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have an impact in this city and in this county and in this world. Let us not, the Bible says, give up the habit of meeting together. Habit. The Bible uses the word habit. I meet people, I get texts all the time that say, uh, I'm going to miss church this week uh, because I don't feel good. But actually, there's a good movie coming out today. I mean, I know young people who have already bought their movie tickets for Twilight. For dawn, the day of dawn or... Yeah, see, some of you, I mean, they already bought them. And you know what? You know when they're going to go to the show? At midnight. At midnight. They're all going to be there. Every show is going to be packed out to watch a vampire werewolf movie. And they will go at 12 o'clock midnight and stay there till 2 or 3 in the morning to see a movie, but they won't invest their time to feed their spirit. It's no big deal. We dry up spiritually every time we miss fellowship with other believers. That's the reason. What's the routine? The routine is it found in Acts 5.42 where it says they, meet, they met day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. That's the routine. They would meet in church and they would meet in homes. When was the last time you invited somebody over your house? When was the last time you let somebody in to your life? When was the last time you said, come on over for some coffee? You know, I talked to somebody yesterday that if you don't let them know the day before that you're coming, they won't let you in their house. I mean, you could be at their door knocking, and they won't let you in because you did not let them know that you were coming. And I just thought, how sad would that be if that person was from Victor Outreach Hayward? How sad would that be that we would have to let somebody know? Imagine Jesus is on, he's saying, hello, church, can I come in? Well, I don't know. You didn't let me know you were coming. I don't know. I got, you know, I, I got dirty clothes kind of spread out all over, and, you know, I'm doing my laundry, and there's piles, and I got dirty dishes, and he's going, I didn't come to see your house. I came to visit you. And I learned that a long time ago, and I say that sincerely because when I was first married, I wasn't as bad as that, but I was like, uh, uh, hold on. And I would, you know, just do that really clean sweep of picking up and pushing and kicking everything underneath the couch and throwing things in the room and slamming the door. And I would do all of that because I wanted to make a good presentation. But I've learned throughout the years, especially when my kids were little, it's like they didn't come to judge me by my house. They came to visit me or my husband or my children. And you can't be so 
you know, how would you say, even selfish, where you say, well, my house is too little, or my house is too small, or I don't have this, or I don't have that. If you have a paper cup or paper plate, you can have people over. And if you don't have that, we'll buy you some paper plates and paper cups. They met day after day in the church and in house to house. They didn't just meet on Sundays. They met every opportunity they could. If all the contact with Christians that you get is only at church, if the only time that you ever see people is at church, then you're not getting enough contact with Christians. You need more than just a Sunday fix. I wonder how many of you who were drug addicts or alcoholics or, or whatever, you say, you know what, I'm just going to drink or fix on Sunday. That's it. No other day. That's the only day I'm going to fix. It's the only day I'm going to call the girl that I love. One day a week. It's the only day that I'm going to say hello to people. One day a week. How sad is that? None of us, none of us in this room ever did something small. If we were drug addicts, we were drug addicts. If we were alcoholics, we were alcoholics. If we were gang members, we were gang members. If we were whatever we were, we were to the nth power. Then how come when we come to church, all of a sudden we like, we forget that addictive personality and all of a sudden, we're like, oh, Sundays is good. God bless you. God bless you. When you were an addict, oh, my gosh, you didn't even know half the people in the house. You didn't even know whose house it was. You had no idea whose car it was. You had no idea who was in the car. And now you got to, oh, who's going? You want to know who's going and where do they live and how long they've been coming to church. You want a third degree. You want a whole resume now. But before you just hopped, hey, let's go. Okay, come on. And, and you jump in and you're like, hey, how you doing? How you doing? And you meet people. When you were out there, you met people all the time. Why are you so afraid now? They met day after day in two different groups, in the church and house to house. They met. In Israel, you will find Solomon's courts all around the temple. And they were enormous. You could probably hold 50,000 people in the temple courts. Because they all stood for worship. They didn't have chairs back then. They had not invented chairs for worship. They stood for worship. They had big celebrations on Sunday. But then after Sunday, they met house to house. And those houses were really small. They were little. Every Christian needs to have this kind of balance in their life. Large groups on Sundays, small groups during the week. Large groups on Sunday nights, small groups during the week. Now, a small group could be what we call our journey groups, or it could just be fellowship, one with another. You can share prayer requests. You can get together with people. You can't know everybody in this room just by coming on Wednesdays and Sundays. That's why our church has to be large and it has to be small at the same time. We're going to be starting our journey groups again come January. And you need to get connected. You need to already know ahead of time, 
I got to get in a small group. I got to get to know somebody. I got to be accountable to somebody. We need to have a large group on Sunday and then group fellowship during the week. So what's the result? We did the reason. We did the routine. What's the result of people getting together with other believers? Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 says two are better off than one because together they are more effective. So if you want to be more effective in your Christian life, you need to get together. You need to have, because there's strength in numbers. There's accountability in numbers. For a Christian to say, I don't need any other Christians. I don't need a church family. I don't need a small group. That's suicide. You're just kidding yourself. We need to each help each other to grow and develop. In basketball or football, when you've got a major star playing against you offensively, you, you have to team up. You have to double team. And I called my son and I asked him, who are the stars that guys would have to double team right now? And he said, oh, that's Vernon Davis from the 49ers and Darren McFadden from the Raiders. They can't be left alone. You have to double team them. Well, it's the same way in the spiritual. In order for you to tackle the major problems in your life, and you're going to have some major problems, we're going to have to double team you with prayer. We're going to have to double team you with encouragement. We're going to have to double team you, and sometimes we're going to have to hold you up. But if you're alone or you don't come around or you think, you know what, I got this, I could do this, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. You need a team of other believers. You need to join and stay connected to a church family. See, I could have talked to you about a lot of good habits, but these three habits are indispensable, the ones you can't get along without. These three habits you need in your Christian life. They affect your time, your money, in your relationships. If God is number one in all of these three areas, then he's really number one, and he can bless your life. There's more promises related to these three habits than any other habits in the Bible. And I know that you want to be effective for the Lord. I know that you want God to bless your life. I know that you'd like to be used by him. I know that you want to sense his presence. I know that you'd like to have greater depth of understanding of his word. But you might not be disciplined. You might not be the kind of person that has developed these kind of habits. And if you have a hard time becoming disciplined, then I want to make a suggestion. Consider making a growth covenant. Now, what's a growth covenant? A growth covenant is when you tell somebody to hold you accountable. Hold you accountable for your time with the Lord. You know what? Call me, make sure, ask me, did you pray today? Did you have your quiet time? Call me and ask me, did you tithe? Call and ask me, have I fellowshiped with another Christian this week outside of church? That's a growth covenant. You are covenanting with someone else to grow. And the book of Nehemiah tells us the story that all of the nation together made a growth covenant. In Nehemiah 9.39, it says, we know what we ought to do. We know the right thing. We want to grow as believers, but we are weak. So we're all going to make a covenant. We're all going to sign up together. It says that they signed a covenant. The leaders of the nation stamped it, and they put their seal on it. And what they said is, we're going to pray for each other. 
like the redwoods. We're going to have to intertwine to keep ourselves together, to keep ourselves putting God first in our life. We have to make an agreement. Sometimes it's not with your spouse. It's got to be somebody else. Because if it's your spouse telling you, have you prayed today? Ooh, it just bugs you. Can't be your spouse. It's got to be somebody else that you're going to let into your life. So if you want to get spiritually fit tonight, then it's going to take some time. And it's going to take some effort. Bold fitness is what it's going to take. Spiritual energy. And it's going to keep you. And it won't, it won't worry. You don't have to worry about how you started. These three habits will take you all the way to the end. And what happens if you slip? What happens if you mess up? You just don't quit. You just keep on going. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever missed a meal. But did you give up on eating? And say, no, I messed up. I didn't eat. Forget it. I'm never going to eat again. If I can't be consistent in eating, then I'm just going to stop. No, if you miss a meal, you just make up for it on the next meal. If you miss your quiet time, make it up. If you don't fellowship with someone this week, make it up. The commitment is saying, I want to have a daily quiet time with God. I want to give my tithes weekly to the Lord. And I want to have a regular growth covenant with someone. If you want to be spiritually fit, it's up to you. Nobody can force you to do something that you don't want to do. But I want to challenge you, if you mean business in getting spiritually fit, if you really want to make some serious changes in your life, then tonight's the night. To not just come up here and say, you know what, God, I want to change. If you're going to come up here, you're making a commitment that you're going to tell somebody, you're going to open up your life to them. And you're going to say, talk to me. Challenge me. Push me. Kick me. Do whatever you got to do, but I want to grow. I want to grow. Stand with me tonight. And I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes or bow your heads. I'm just going to say, if you want to change, if you truly want to become fit, then the altars are open. But, but if you come, you're going to open yourself up to somebody and ask them to be part of your growth covenant. Amen? The altars are open for you to come.